I guess uh, today we'll do um, we'll do a little bit of two things. First of all, I just want to concentrate for a focus of for a minute about today's day. The day after Shavuos is a very special day. Sometimes people don't realize that, but uh, it has a very special significance. Generally speaking, it's almost uh, difficult to think of making a transition from a Yom Tov into a weekday. Here we're celebrating and we're in shul, we're davening and we are blessed. And we're davening and we're doing all kinds of things and uh, we feel, you know, spiritually closer to God. You know, we do yisker, we do all the, all the, the good things and then, then thrown into the, uh, into the weekday. So it's what's called, I'm not sure if you ever heard it before, it's called Isru Chag. Isru Chag really means the day that follows the Yom Tov. Um, Basically, we have three Yom Tovs, or the Shalosh Regalim, which is Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. Ah, I'm sorry, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and Shavuos. No. Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuos. I know, okay. I just taught it to the kids. And oh, like, yeah, no, I should know that. They're like, who has three legs? Shalosh Regalim. Yeah, Shalosh Regalim. I'm like, hey, no, we have three. Okay, so Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot are the, the three festivals. As you know that uh, during those festivals, uh, the people were supposed to go up to Jerusalem, those who lived within the walking distance, and and go to the temple and uh, be part. It was sort of a um, a reminder every once, every few months to go up to Jerusalem, so the people don't forget, you know, that they belong to to uh, to the Jewish people, that they have the service of the temple. Matter of fact, once uh, we read in the Navi, once the Jewish tribes split, so the king of, of Israel, Yeravam ben Nevot, he went against the king of Yehuda. The following, they broke off from kings of Yehuda. They were worried that if the Jewish people will continue to travel to Jerusalem, they will so- somehow go back to the king of Judah, and uh, they'll denounce Yeravam ben Nevot, who was taken, became the king of the rest of the tribes of Israel. So what he did was he created idols in, in the city of Dan and other places. And he said to the Jews, they don't have to go up anymore to the temple. They should go up and worship the idols. And that was a, uh, a beginning of a downfall. So the, it had a very important purpose of getting together every once in a while. So we, we see a lot of things that we know today, the importance of, uh, I guess, uh, support, uh, that we have various different kinds of support groups, you know, people that, uh, you know, if they're suffering from certain certain situations and they can't do it alone, so we get a support group. The whole idea of getting support, of being part, not just doing it alone, is something that we find in the... Uh, something that we find in the, uh, in the, in, in the Torah. And that's the, one of the reasons... This is one of the reasons why we have the Shalosh Rugalim. But of course, like I said... It's a beautiful idea. When yeah. everybody comes together and they get inspired and they see the beautiful Beit HaMikdash. It's, it's, it's to get inspired and to be able to hold on till the next time you go to visit. They didn't have synagogues. That what? They did not have synagogues. There was only one. Uh, yes and no. I mean, the mo- ma- mainly it was the Beit HaMikdash. I'm not sure... No. I'm not sure, you know, they didn't have synagogues at all? I mean, in the... Okay. 
Okay, but okay. So, but that's the synagogue today is sort of a miniature Bet uh, Hamikdash. It's called the Mikdash Maat. It's sort of a, a place where people get together to 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 pray. Um, but what after the Yom Tov, like we said, is kind of uh, difficult to sort of uh, just go home and that's it all over. So you have the Isru Chag. We learned out Isru Chag really means, Isru means uh, to tie down. We'll see in a minute inside. It means to tie down the festival, to make it like a little bit of a, an additional festival, to continue sort of the festivities a little bit. So today, being that Shavuot is also one of the three holidays, so today, which is the day after Yontav, is called Isru Chag. Of course, in Israel, it's yesterday, because in Israel, Shavuot was only one day, so Isru Chag was on Monday. But by us, because we do two days, so Isru Chag is by us on Tuesday, is the day after the second day Yontav, which becomes the Isru Chag. But what we're going to learn today is that actually Shavuot is not the ordinary Isru Chag, but actually it's a lot more holiday than the holiday of all the Isru Chags, which means the day that follows Shavuos is of more significance, more importance, more holiday than all the other days that follow, the day that would follow Pesach and the day that would follow Sukkot. One of the main difference between Pesach and Sukkot and Shavuot, what is Shavuot? Because Pesach is for how many days? Actually, if we talk about from the Torah, how many days is Pesach? Is seven. Okay. How many days is Sukkot? Seven. And Shemini Atzeres is eight. So it depends really how you want to count it. Sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's eight days. But Shavuot, how many days is Shavuot? Just one day, really. It's really one day. From the Torah, it's only one day. So because it's only one day, uh, the question in the Talmud, they learn it out from the verses that you know, there was a lot of people came up to, to visit the Beit HaMikdash and it would be almost impossible physically uh, any time when you came up to the Beit HaMikdash the Torah says V'lo yera'u panai reikom. that's where uh, grandparents or parents when they come to the children they always have to bring a gift don't come empty handed if you come if you come to see your children, you come to see the grandchildren, you got to bring a gift. Lo yerau panayrekom. My face shall not be seen empty-handed. But actually, there is what's called olot ri'iyah. Every time when the Jewish people went up to the temple, went up to the Beit HaMikdash, they had to bring a korban. It's called the korban olot ri'iyah. And, uh, but if there were so many people, yeah, the question is, how did they all manage to bring all the karbanot in one day? You know, Shavuot, there's seven days. Sukkot, there's seven days or eight days. But on, on I mean, on Pesach, there's seven days. On Sukkot, there's seven or eight days. But how did they do it all in one day? So actually, we learned it out from the Pasuk that we can do the karbanot for seven days. So the people that came to Jerusalem they didn't have to bring it on the first day only. They could bring it all seven days. Those of you who do the services in the morning or in the afternoon will notice that's the prevalent minhag, the custom. I'm not sure that everybody does that. But we don't say tachanun through the 12th of the month. And that's the reason, which means 
the Shavuot is on the 6th, but the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th. So actually by us, it's, um, it's, it's, it's the 12th day of the month because that, that is when uh, up to the 12th day of the month they can bring the Karbanot. Again, 6th, the 6th Shavuot, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th. So that is seven days. So for seven days, you can bring the Korbanot. That's why we don't say Tachanun. It's still considered a holiday through the 12th day of the month because you can still bring the Korbanot. Explain what Tachanun is. Huh? Explain Tachanun. Okay, Tachanun, just so you know what Tachanun is, in the, there's the regular prayer. Then there's a special prayer that you sort of ask Hashem for forgiveness, a special prayer that we add we're sort of uh, beseeching Hashem to forgive us. Uh, that section of the prayer, asking Hashem to forgive us, that special prayer, is not done during the holidays because that's considered to be kind of a prayer of upsetting prayer. That's a, a prayer which is uh, involves sin, involves you know asking forgiveness, and in that sense, it could sometimes, uh, which is some of the other next topic that we're going to discuss today, a little bit from the parsha, which is about confessing our sins or saying I'm sorry, you know, the importance of, of, of saying sorry or why is it just enough to feel remorse in your heart or do you actually have to verbalize it and do you have to say the words. We'll talk about it in, in a minute, but the Tachanon is sort of the verbalizing, is saying what you feel in your heart. But because it's a holiday spirit, we don't on Shabbat, on the Chag, on uh, days that are considered to be semi-chag, we don't do the tachanun. So how do we uh, know that, uh, how do we celebrate this special seven days that we uh, bring the korbanot? How is it? Because we don't say tachanun through the 12th day of the month, through Yud Bet, we don't say the tachanun. The korbanot on the different chagim are not for sins. No, th- those are called, like I said, Lo yerau panai rekam. This is just a gift that you have to bring. They are called olot riyah. They're just a sacrifice to Hashem for seeing. Actually, these are karbanot, which are called ola. The very is different. Some karbanot, like are called the shlamim. The karban shlamim was a karban, which uh, a part of it, the fat of of some of the fat of the animal was burned on the altar on the mizbeach. Part of it was eaten by the Kohanim, and the other part was eaten by the owners who brought it. It's called Shlamim, it's sort of Shalom, it makes peace, because everybody gets a part of it. It's something that everybody gets a part. But Karban Ola, Ola means it's all, it is fully, uh, it's a burnt offering, what's called. It goes totally concerned on the Mizbeh. This Ri'iyah, we learn from the Pasuk, is Ola, it's an Ola, it's a Karban Ola. So, as I said, during Pesach and during uh, Sukkot, they had seven days. It's not like the first day you came to the temple, you already brought it. You had for seven days. It was a festival, so you brought it any one of the seven days. The problem we had is with Shavuot, which is only one day, and we said, well, even though the festival is one day, but you can still, for seven days, we learn from the Pasuk, you can still bring the Korbanot for seven days. Here is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting question, because we know on Shabbat, one is not allowed to do any kind of work. But on the Chag, on Yom Tev, one 
is permitted to do work which is considered needed for sustaining, for food, for sustaining the person he's allowed to do. For example, cooking. On Shabbat, one is not allowed to cook at all. But on Yom one is allowed to cook because cooking, the idea behind it is because the festival was meant to celebrate. Shabbat is meant to rest. That's the idea of Shabbat is not to do work. That's Shabbat. But the Yom Tov, the Chag, is meant a celebration. It should be v'samachta b'chagecha. You should rejoice in the festival, have a good meal, drink good wine, have a, a drink and food and everything. It should be delicious. That's part of the celebration. How does one achieve that? You know, the olden days, they didn't have all the modern technologies of being able to, the crockpots and other things. It was, if you couldn't cook, they couldn't eat. They wouldn't be able to celebrate, really. So they needed to cook the food to make a good, you know, a good barbecue or whatever they had to be able to enjoy the meal, the chag. So the Torah allows for the people to do any kind of work that it has a benefit for the person for his celebration. Like, for example, carrying on the chag on Yom Tov. Carrying is also considered to be a necessity for the food because, you know, you have to bring the food in from the outside here there. You can't restrict the person. So carrying is one of the things that is permitted to do on Yom Tov. But there's only always a stipulation, just so we know, that it has to be a certain need. You know, you can't, like, if you want to bring your sitter to shul, for example, even though you're not eating your sitter, it has nothing to do with, with any food, but it's still, it's for the need of the holiday. Once there's a need for the holiday, carrying is permitted, so you can carry. You can push the baby carriage, you can do whatever whatever you need to do, there's no problem. Yom Tov, it's okay. Now, the you can't cook for that day. You can't cook, like... Sunday, you couldn't cook for Monday. That's right. Yeah, okay. yeah. For that, like you're saying, the same. Yeah. So there has to have a purpose for whatever you're doing. Why could you not cook? Just I want to allow you mentioning this, but why can you not cook from Sunday for the next day? Why? Because technically the next day is not really a Chag. We have it a Chag, but it's a weekday. We don't want to work on the Chag for the weekday. Well, it's one thing to work. What? Yeah. Okay. So, but it's it's one thing to cook for the Chag on the Chag. But you don't want to work on the Chag for the weekday, so that's why we don't allow you to cook on the Chag for another day. Now, even though we do two days Chag, but it's only because that's a whole other discussion I don't want to get into now, but it's really the Chag is one day, so that's why, like, one should not prepare from the Chag for the weekday or from Shabbat for the weekday preparation. Because we don't, we want to have it distinguished. We want it to be special, not to use for another day. But here becomes the issue. This is why there's an interesting issue over here. Um, the issue becomes: What about these carbonot? Olotriyah. We just talked about before. Are they permitted to be brought on the chag itself? Because on one hand, yes, we have to bring a korban. The Torah tells us, but we don't have to bring it on the chag. So let's say the Chag, let's say Pesach, or let's say uh, Sukkot, let's say. Let's say it starts on, um, let's say the first day is on Tuesday, let's say, okay. Uh, he can bring, one can bring this Karbanot for seven days. He can bring it Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Shabbat, I mean not Shabbat, Sunday, Monday, he can bring it. The rest of the days of the week, he can bring the Karban then. Should, is the person allowed to bring this Karban on Tuesday, on the first day of the Chag. Isn't that the purpose of why he's bringing it? What he has come up for the holiday? Yes, okay, so 
remember this particular korban, which is the olatri uh, ya, is there is no benefit to the person from that korban. He's just—it's a sacrifice. He doesn't eat anything. There's no—he doesn't gain anything. There's no food for the person from that sacrifice. So one can argue and say, well, this is not really for any of your purpose. So don't do it on the chag itself. Do it on the next day. Seven days you can bring it. Why do it on the Chag? If you can do it, you're not, you don't have to do it on the holiday. You don't have to do it on Yom Tov. Do it on the next day. So if the Yom Tov is on Tuesday, do it Wednesday, do it Thursday, do it Friday. That's what Hashem wants. He says, don't give your hands very cut empty. Yeah, but, okay, but, but, I, but I, I did say that one is permitted to bring it any day of the seven days. You don't have to bring it on the first day. You can bring it whenever you want during the festival. I also said that on Shavuot, we can bring it for seven days that follow Shavuot. Um, the difference is, by Pesach and Sukkot, the days that follow the first days are Chag anyways. There's seven days for Sukkot and seven days for, for Pesach. But the, 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 the issue is, should we push off the bringing the Olat the Korban that we bring when we come to see Hashem, for the day after the Chag, so we won't be, I mean, to a Korban, you have to shecht it, which is only permissible if you need to do it. Yeah, you're burning it on the Mizbeach, so you're doing various different kinds of malachot, of work which you shouldn't ordinarily do. The question is, are you allowed to do this on the Chag itself? So this is very interesting. Um, you know, there are two famous houses of uh, thoughts, which is Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel. Now, Bet Shammai was always the more stringent one, and Bet Hillel were always the more compromising. They were all more lenient. We read one time at one class, I believe it was on the Wednesday night class, we read from the, uh, from the Talmud the whole story about how the uh, Hillel was so accommodating and when people came they wanted to convert or they wanted to get Hillel accepted them and he sort of uh, took uh, you know a lot of uh, which other people would say no this person is not genuine and we don't want to accept him but Hillel always reached out and always accepted everyone and he was uh, and eventually we know that the ruling becomes like Hillel. So the Talmud says, why is the Hillel, why is the ruling like Hillel? It says specifically because they were more modest and they were more accepting. And even Talmud says like this, when they would quote, like if they have two opinions, they'd say, well, my opinion is such and the other opinion is such, they would always quote the other opinion before they did their own. So they never push themselves to say, we, we are right. They always sort of were uh, very humble about it, about their own position. And because of their humility, actually, the ruling is like them. They are the ones that are, are the ruling right. So well, here we have a, 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 a disagreement between these two houses, between the Bet Shammai and the Bet Hillel. According to Bet Shammai, it's okay to bring the korban on 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 the chag. It's, uh, it's it's I'm sorry. It's not okay. He's the most. They're more stringent. They say no, no. You have to bring it after the chag. There's nothing for the person. There's nothing for them. That's not not acceptable. Uh, Bet Hillel, on the other hand, say no. You could bring it on on the chag also. It's okay. Presumably, I'm just saying an idea. Presumably, you can say 
because they believe bringing a korban for Hashem is actually doing something for yourself as well. You can't really separate it. It's really, it really becomes lachem, even though you don't physically have that, but it's still considered a need, it's still considered something that you, that, that is for you and is permitted. But that's another thing, the logic behind the reasoning. But it says like this, again, interesting. So even though the Beit Hillel disagreed with the Beit Shammai, and they said, no, it's, it's okay to bring the Korban, but yet, in reality, they listened to the Beit Shammai's ruling, and they did not, the people, did not bring it on the Chag. There's nothing wrong with bringing it the next day as well. So even though Beit Shammai said, yes, you could bring it on, on the first day Chag, they listened to Beit Shammai, and they didn't do it. So that's another sign of their humility and their acceptance. And they didn't, so even though it's my opinion and it's my ruling, yes, but they sort of forego their own opinion to accept the opinion. So actually, what did the Jewish people do? The Jewish people listened to Beis Hillel, who did like Beis Shammai, so no, none of the people would bring their korban on the Chag. So everybody would leave it for the next day. So what happened on Pesach? And what happened on Sukkot? So nobody brought their korban on the day itself. They brought it the next day. During the holiday, they, they would bring it. Now, can you imagine what happened on Shavuot? Shavuot is one day, right? So they didn't bring it on Shavuot itself because Beit Shammai says no. Beit Hillel agrees with Beit Shammai, so they didn't bring it. But what happens after Shavuot? Everybody's going to go home. <laughs> Nobody wants to go home. I mean, Pesach and, and, and Sukkot is seven days, so they hang around the temple for the Korban of the holiday. But Shavuot is one day, God, everything is, is done. There's nothing else really going on. And the next day, in the Bet HaMikdash, is just an ordinary day. Well, those who didn't have a chance to bring the Korbanot can bring it for seven days. Okay, fine. But there's nothing really going on. There's no special service going on. Everything is done. One day, everybody's going home. Yes, the weather is nice. Nobody was going to linger. Everybody's going to go back home. So what happened? You can just imagine. It was a mad rush on the day after Shavuot because nobody has brought their karbanot yet. And now all of a sudden, it's the first opportunity. So everybody is coming in and bringing their karbanot. It actually, the Talmud says he gave it a special name. It was called Yom Tavuach, the day of Shechting, because there was just so much Shechting going on. All the Korbanot, where everybody was bringing the Korbanot, so it was called the Yom Tavuach, it was called. And because of that, generally, whenever a person brought a Korban, yeah, whenever a person, whenever the, the, the uh, whenever there was a necessary, um, um, whenever a person brought a Korban, it was also an emotional experience. It was experience. The word karban means karov, to become close. It was a means of becoming closer to Hashem. It was a celebration for the person. It's like, you know, it's, a, it's an opportunity for a person to, um, I mean, celebrate his, his, his Judaism, his closeness to Hashem, to bring a korban. And it was like a semi-holiday. But all the Jews were all rushing in, I guess, to... to to bring the korban, we call the yom tavuah. How they organize it? Who comes first? I mean, they have long walks. Yes. So over here, so over here, what we have over here is up. Oh, nice. 
Okay, so what we have over here is um, what we have over here is a, um, a special day. So today, okay, the real day would actually be uh, yesterday, would be Monday, because Shavuot is Sunday, and the day after the Chag is Monday. But we do two days because we're not sure which is the sixth. So to us today is the Isru Chag. So today is actually like a semi-festival. And what it says is, now, people don't, uh, I mean, uh, Torah and tea should be today a uh, whole big meal over here, not just the regular mezonahs, uh, because it says the minhag is laharbot b'achila v'shtiyah. It's a custom to increase the eating. It's, it's sort of supposed to have a festive um, uh, time. It's supposed to be like a little chag. It's not supposed to be... Uh, uh, just a regular day. So our transition from the Chag to the regular should be like a little bit through uh, through um, celebration. Okay. Celebration. Having said that, we should take a, I think maybe we should at least say, everybody say a bracha and say a at least so we fulfill the uh, so we fulfill the, the it actually says, thank you, it says it's a minhag, it's a custom to, to make a mizonot. I told you, tell you about It says the now, actually, it's very important because it says that on a regular chag and Pesach and Sukkot, Isru Chag, as I said, the day after the holiday. It's only a minhag. It's only a custom. It's a tradition. But it's not halacha. But today it's actually halacha. That today's day is unique. It's actually halacha. How does it express itself? Eating is a, it's a minhag to eat a little more. But it's also expressed itself that any time when there's a, like a festival, one is not permitted to fast. Like, why would a person fast? So sometimes, you know, person usually, usually associate... Achatan and Akala, the day they get married, mm-hmm. they would fast. A uh, bride and a groom, they fast on the day they get married. It's kind of Yakan Yom Kippur when you do Teshuvah. Sometimes we have uh, fast days associated. Sometimes Bahagwana. Then you have a Yorzeit sometimes. You have people fast on a Yorzeit. Sometimes some people fast when they have a bad dream. There's something about fasting for a bad dream, which is a Tanit Chalom. There's various different kinds. I mean, various different kinds of fasting that people do, but those are um, pushed away when there's even a semi-holiday. You know, there's like Megillah Tainit, who discusses all the days that one should not really fast because they're semi-holidays. Other thing is also is about a eulogy. Now, on a day when there is a holiday, when there's a festival, and you have to bury somebody. Not talking about when you don't say tachanun, when you don't with some holiday, you would not make a eulogy. So, like, if you're doing, let's say, a, if you do a funeral, let's say, on Friday afternoon, Friday afternoon, it's almost Shabbat already, so you don't make a eulogy. Uh, it's during the month of Nisan. So, like today, because it's after Shavuot and because of this Yom Tavuach, because of this special day, you would actually not be allowed to do a eulogy and you would not be allowed to fast. So that means these are all expressions of saying that this is a, um, uh, you know, a special, a special day. So, what is the 
Shiva, yes. Shiva, 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 yes. Shiva for the holiday. This is not enough of a holiday to push away. So we're saying a holiday, yes. But if if uh, the second day Shavuos would count as part of the Shiva, but but the the this day that this is just it's like a semi. It's a little bit. It's not enough to push away uh, Shiva. Well, what do we see of this? I mean, I wanted to. Um, what do we see of this? See, we see something interesting, which will also connect to the second night discussion from the parsha today. They want to talk. It seems something like um, when you um, when you speak about um, let's say about your sin, uh, asking forgiveness. Somehow, even speaking about it causes you to become more, uh, I guess, into what you're saying. Because, you know, we, we mentioned earlier, so what happens, you know, we insist a lot of times, you know, a child or an adult, for that matter, if they did something wrong to another person, so we insist that they say to them, I'm sorry. Yeah, we insist to say, I'm sorry. Say that you're sorry for what you did. So the question is, what's the purpose of saying, I'm sorry? So matter of fact, in this week's Parsha, Parsha is not so, the verse states that if you sin against God or against another person, uh, which, by the way, if you sin against another person, you're also sinning against God because God tells you to treat every other person with respect and without hurting their feelings or without causing them any pain, not, not embarrassing somebody and not shaming, not doing anything to hurt another person. If you do that, it's not only that you're hurting the other person, but you're actually violating a mitzvah of Hashem. You're going against Hashem too. So besides asking forgiveness from the other person, you also have to ask Hashem forgiveness. So we know the Torah says that you shall confess. So there is this very specific verse that says that you should verbalize. So I guess to us, most of the uh, reason would be to tell the other person I'm sorry is because the other person doesn't know what's in your heart. If you're sorry or not, how is the other person going to know? Part of, part of making up is getting the other one's forgiveness. The other one needs to forgive you for what they have done. But they're not going to forgive you if you are not going to make them feel good or you're not going to say that you're sorry. So the purpose for saying you're sorry would be so the other person knows that you are sorry, so they can either forgive you or not forgive you, which, by the way, we know that, especially because before you Kippur, we know that we always have to ask from our, our friends and from people that we associate, we have to ask them forgiveness because if we want God to forgive us, we have to ask for forgiveness from the people. And, um, and we know that it's our obligation in most cases to forgive the person provided we think that the person is sincere, that they're really asking for forgiveness. And who, who knows, who could know sincerity? We don't really know. So one has to give the other person the benefit of the doubt and thinking that maybe they say it. That, and when they say they're not going to do it again or they feel remorse, they feel bad for what they've done. So we have to accept that. But this would really apply between people. Because the other person doesn't know what's in your heart. And again, it's incumbent upon every person to forgive the other person. You know, I tell this joke about the, um, 
the, the uh, congregation was doing the service Yom Kippur and by the Elah, the rabbi gets up and he says to the he says to the congregation, he says to them, so after all the prayers that we did, we fasted a whole day and now we're coming to the end of Yom Kippur, he says, who can find it in their heart to forgive people who have wronged them throughout the year? So, you know, 75 of the congregation gets up and there's 25 still sitting down. The rabbi said, that's not good enough, I need, I need more. So now, so we're going to continue praying. So they pray for another half an hour. And now he asks, now the whole congregation gets up, besides this elderly lady. She doesn't get up. So the rabbi turns to her, he says to her, ma'am, he says, what, what is it that you can't forgive your enemies? What is it so hard? She says, rabbi, I'll be honest with you, she says, I don't have any enemies. So, okay. So the rabbi says to her, come on over. Tell us how a lady lives for 90 years and doesn't have any enemies. That's so amazing. She says, Rabbi, she says, makes her way to the, uh, to the uh, platform. She says, Rabbi, I don't know what you're making. Said, it's very, very simple. She says, I'll outlive them all. <laughs> so, uh, the, uh, the, uh, no, but the point is, when you interact with humans, and one doesn't know what the other person is thinking, uh, okay, so we understand. You have to verbalize it because that's the way you communicate. You communicate your feelings. If a student is disrespectful to a teacher, if a, uh, if a spouse hurts the feeling of the, uh, the other, the, their spouse, uh, you have to say that you're sorry because even... Now, sometimes you don't even mean it so much as sometimes you just want to move on, whatever. But still... The other person doesn't know what's in your heart. But the question really becomes, what's the, what's the point in saying I'm sorry to God? In other words, the question would be, is there any value, um, is there any value of just saying to God, I'm sorry, but you don't, you're not really sorry? And we could ask the same thing about human beings too. Is there any value to saying to somebody, you know, I'm sorry what I said to you. I hurt your feelings, but I'm sorry. But, you know, you know, they're not even sorry. They're not, they don't care. They just, and you know, the evidence for that is because they did it, they're going to do it again. <laughs> so, you know that. But, or maybe they made a mistake again. So you have to also give the benefit of the doubt. They could have been sincere and they could have really meant it, but maybe, you know, maybe they forgot. Maybe they did it again. Okay. But that's all when we talk about human beings. But God knows what's in your heart, right? So if God knows what's in your heart, so He really knows if you mean it or not. So why does God say that we have to confess? What? How is confessing to God, saying it? And that's what we do on the Yom Kippur. For the sin, I sin for you. Or the Tachanun, I was talking, Ashamnu, Bagadnu. So what's the purpose in, in saying it? You know, God knows what we've done. So why would God want us to say it? And herein comes the actual power of words. Because just like words have a power in the negative, so if you say something, um, in a way, it's much stronger 
and it can do a lot more damage than you just think about it. Thinking about thinking a negative thought about someone is not as hurtful and is not as damaging as as saying something bad. If you bring something out in your mouth, in your speech, and you say something bad about somebody, that is even more hurtful and more painful than just thinking about it. Now, of course, one shouldn't even think anything negative. One shouldn't even think bad. But yet, we know the emphasis, like on Lashon Hara, not to speak. Because when you speak something that has a very profound effect, uh, you bring it out into the open. As the Talmud says, that if you speak, uh, if you speak Lashon Hara, you're actually hurting, it says, you're actually hurting three people, it says. If you speak bad, evil about somebody else, to, to, if you speak to another person bad about somebody else, you're actually hurting three people. Who? You're hurting yourself because you're speaking Lashon Hara, you shouldn't be speaking evil. You're hurting the person who is listening because if they wouldn't be listening, then you wouldn't be speaking but you're also hurting the person you're talking about. But how does that affect the person that you're talking about? So presumably what you're saying about the other person isn't a lie. If you're just lying about the person, you're just making up stories, that's called a sheker, that's motzi uh, shemra, you're putting a bad name about somebody. When we talk about lashan hara, talking evil, even if you're saying the truth, you're not making up a story, you're saying something which the person is guilty of. So. If he's guilty, if he did something bad, he did something bad and you're telling it to somebody else. So what he's done, he's done. How am I hurting him by telling you what the person has done? But the answer is no. When you bring it out of your lips and you say it and you bring it into the world, you know, even Hashem sometimes looks away. Hashem looks away sometimes. Certain things we do, Hashem doesn't, he gives us another chance, he pretends not to see and he will look away. But if somebody will come and point it out and say, this person is evil, so to speak, you're forcing Hashem's arm, that Hashem must do something about it, because everybody says this person is evil, why isn't he getting punished? So that's why the Gemara says that the person who is spoken of is also being hurt. If you speak bad about him, that person is being hurt also, because you're bringing it out into the open, you're saying about it. When you say words, and you confess, there's various different benefits to the person. First of all, when you say that you're sorry to Hashem, just the words that you say is something which will help you actually, heart will go after your words, what you speak. So even at the time, maybe that you're speaking, you're not so sincere, but saying it and saying it enough times will actually help your kavana that also your mind will be able to start thinking. If you say to somebody sorry, and you say it once or twice, maybe you will start feeling sorry. So words have the power to draw you in to what you're saying. So when you say it, you'll actually start uh, doing it. So when we come to God and we say, I'm sorry for sinning against you, even if we're not yet... 100% in our heart, we're not remorseful, we don't really regret it. But just saying it is the beginning which will draw us into it later. One of the advices given by, by rabbis and by the Rebbe, you know, people like to pray, but sometimes their mind uh, starts to uh, fluctuate. It, 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 
wanders. wanders. The mind wanders. They, they don't. They don't. They want to do the prayer with. Uh, what time we have? I don't know. Um, I'm a little fast. So what time is that? It's like ten of seven. Ten of seven. So the sometimes you know you want to pray with kavanah, but your mind begins to wander, and you don't really. Have, so what is the advice to that? Number one is to say out the words, to say the words. First of all, to look at the sidur, not to do it by heart. Look at the sidur, and number two, to say out the words. And that's why some people daven loud because the kol morera kavanah, the the voice will bring the kavanah. So that, that's number one. So it's very interesting. The Rebbe makes a note from uh, a seemingly Maimonides writes. Uh, he says like this. He says, look, Maimonides almost seems pretty um, pushing it away. He says, people just utter words. They say, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. Ashamnu, bagadnu, al-chait. They do everything. They don't care about it. So he gives an example. He says, it, this would be for example. He says, you know, when you touch an, an insect, that would cause you to be impure. How would you become pure again? He says, you go to the mikvah. You go into the mikvah, you go into a body of water, you immerse yourself, you become clean. So the Rambam says like this, those people who keep on saying they're sorry, 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 and they don't really mean it, what they're saying. They're just saying it. It's the same, you can equate this to somebody who's going into the mikvah and he's holding the insect in his hand while he's immersing. So here you're trying to, to immerse yourself to become clean. And what you're doing is you're holding on to that insect. And with the insect, you're done. So you haven't done anything. You haven't, you haven't cleaned yourself because you're, the insect is right there. So most people, when they read this Rambam, this Maimonides, they say, well, what Rambam is really saying, in other words, is that you're wasting your time. Don't even bother saying anything because you're not accomplishing anything because you're in the mikvah with the insect in, in, in your hand. So you're not really saying anything. So don't, don't say nothing. You know, either mean it or else don't bother saying it. But Rebbe says not so. He says just the opposite. He says, look, the Rebbe says as the difference between the way the Rambam writes it, Maimonides writes it, and look at it, the source in the Talmud. Because in the Talmud it says just a little bit different word. It says the same idea, but it just said words it a little differently. In the Talmud it says, not that you're in the mikveh with the insect, it says that even if a person would go into all the waters in, in the world, he would not be able to be clean if he's not dropping the insect. But the, my mom gives the example, he says, you are in the water, but you're still holding on to the sheriff. So, if you look closely, you see what the Maimonides is saying. He's saying, it's not that you're doing nothing. He's not saying that you're not in the mikvah. He's saying you're in the mikvah, but you're still holding on to your, to your, uh, to your sins. You're not really purifying. You're saying, God, I want to be clean and I want to be good. But, but you're not really saying it. You're just saying it. You're just doing lip service. So it's not good enough. But the Rambam doesn't say that you're not in the mikvah. He said you are in the mikvah. I mean, you're doing, you're, 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 you, you are at a certain level saying that you're sorry and confessing to get, even though it's not genuine, is still a value. It's still something very important. You're doing something good. But you're holding on to the sheriffs. You got to let go of the sheriffs. You got to let go of the insect if you want it to be, if you want it to be full. 
he wanted to accomplish. So the same thing is with ourselves, you know, to, uh, to understand ourselves is that uh, the fact that we say that we've sinned something, there is something, there's a little bit of an embarrassment, there's a little bit of, a, of, of accountability. It's the beginning. It may not be the ultimate, and you're not done, but it may be, it's something which starts the, the process. And, um, and the same thing is, is with interpeople's relationship even though the other person knows that, you know, the sorry, you know, you're, you're, you're just saying it, but it begins the process of healing. It begins the process of, of making up. And uh, you say it, and then you go on. But it's not something which you just stop. But the truth is, after you genuinely feel remorse, and you genuinely are really sorry, there's another value to saying it, because saying it brings out what is in your heart into the open, which sort of strengthens it, brings it out, it brings, makes it tangible, because what's in your heart is sort of not, not the known, but you can express what you really feel in your heart. So when we say to Hashem, we confess to Hashem, yes, in the beginning we may be starting off like just saying the words, and we're still holding on to the insect, and we're not really doing what we're supposed to, but eventually, uh, when we do feel it, and then we do continue to say it, then it actually has that extra power of bringing us and making it fully. Which is also the, uh, just to uh, conclude with a story. Huh? I am wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah right, right, right. Now, I'll just tell you a, 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 a short story where we talk about this, uh, you know, the... Um, one of the rebbes, that was the grandfather of the of of the grandfather, the the father of the previous rebbe. Um, uh, him and his brother, they were you know great 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 tzaddikim. But the younger brother became the rebbe. Shalom Ber, his name is Shalom Dovber. Reb Shalom Dovber, known as the Rebbe Rashab, he became the rebbe. But he had an older brother. His name was Reb Zalman Aaron. Reb Zalman Aaron, the Razo, known as the Razo, he refused to become Rebbe. He didn't want to become Rebbe. But he still, and he put all of his support behind his brother. He helped his brother and he was there. But he was the Rebbe. He was, Razo was not the Rebbe. The Rashab was the Rebbe. Now, one time, there was a person that came in to the Rebbe Rashab and for a visit, because the way it used to be, by Hasidim, they call it Yechidus. Yechidus means you have a private meeting with the Rebbe. That's considered like the ultimate, the highest point of somebody being able to meet to the, with the Rebbe by himself, in the Rebbe's room. So here this rabbi, this individual came to the Rebbe. He leaves the Rebbe's room, and he's crying, sobbing, uncontrollable. It's just uncontrollable crying, so you know, the Razo was there in the shul, the brother of the Rebbe, he's the older brother of the Rebbe, the shul. He sees this man is crying with bitter tears and he's besides himself, can't, come, can't calm down. He asks them, what happened? Why are you crying? You came from the Rebbe. He says, I came to the Rebbe and I told the Rebbe my problem and the Rebbe told me that he can't help me. He said, he can't help me. And you know what I mean? So the Razo goes back into the Rebbe's room, to his brother's room, and he says to his brother, he says, 
how could you tell a person that you can't help them? You know, they're asking you to help. Anybody who asks for help, you don't refuse help to anybody. How do you do that? So the Rebbe says, send them back in. So he goes back in. The Rebbe speaks to him and he comes out he's happy. And the Rebbe related the story. He said, what did the Rebbe need his brother to tell him that the Jew asks you to help him, you don't refuse them? What, what was going on up here? The Rebbe explained that the first time he went in, he just said words. He says, Rebbe, I'm sorry. But he was still, he was so far away, he was arrogant, and he didn't really mean it. He didn't really, he didn't really have any remorse. Only when the rabbi told him, I can't help you, actually touched him, and that broke him, and then he really opened up, and then he was actually responsive to the rabbi's blessing. So, those first words were important, because they were the first things, but that wasn't enough. Then, his heart came, and then the second time around, the words were actually genuine, and they actually brought him his healing, what he needs to. So, we got to start from somewhere. Um, people, we can't wait till we'll figure out that emotionally, intellectually, uh, everything fits, that everything makes sense to us, and everything we work through, all the various different things, you know, it's, there's a lot. Problem is, we don't live long enough to figure everything out. <laughs> you know, we have, you know, a few years in this world, we don't have that much time to go figure out. But what we do know is, we know that we have a path, we have a direction, and we've seen that the people take that direction they're happy, and they live successful, happy lives, you know, and that's what we see. So we should try to um, emulate that and say, you know, so we have to start with speaking, just doing davening. Let's not worry about, you know, people say, well, I can't be a hypocrite, you know, the first thing you hear, I don't really believe in my heart, and I really have questions, and I really don't know, so until I'm going to figure it out, I'll sort out all my feelings, what I think about the religion, what I think about life, what I think about everything, till that time I'm going to put anything on hold. Can't wait. Can't wait for that. That's, we have to start with doing it. But guess what? Once you start dominating, once you start doing, it starts making sense too. It, start, it falls into place. You have to start with, <coughs> with the words, with the confession. You have to say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'll try to do this. I'll try to be better. Now, it's not going to happen overnight, but slowly but surely. And then we find the wisdom of the Torah, that the Torah tells us you confess, even though sometimes you say, what kind of value is it confessing without remorse? No, start from somewhere, and then hopefully God will help us. It's, right. it's interesting because like, like in school, you know, when kids have a, you know, fight, and so we have like, we discuss, we're going to have shalom, we're going to communicate and everybody talk to each other and we're going to have a conversation. So when kids sometimes say, sorry, the other one says, you don't really mean it. I know you just, but now I could say, just by saying the word sorry, that's already an opening to really getting to the next step, to the next level. 